If you would, please, i got to have you turn to the book of Isaiah and find that kind of in the middle of your Bible, middle and change. And we're going to be looking at chapter 29, or 26 rather, verse 19. Um, again, I realize we have a lot of visitors here this morning. And uh, we are celebrating the resurrection, and I don't want to assume too much, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to assume that we all really understand what that means, and uh, I, I don't want us to, I don't want to assume that you understand how entirely distinct Christianity is among all other thought systems and philosophies and world religions. You know, uh, Buddha... Gandhi, Muhammad, you know, people say that they were great teachers. And whether they were or not, they're all dead. Jesus lives. All other religions try to offer man good advice. And Christianity is the only one that offers good news. Good news that what we can all look around in the world and see is twisted and messed up and broken is being restored. That's what the empty tomb declares to us. You know, the resurrection's not a new idea, right? It's not, it's not something God's people just started believing in the first century at the time of Christ's resurrection. It's been the hope of God's people from the beginning. As soon as we see God start making promises of deliverance and redemption and everlasting life to people, they hoped in the resurrection. Why? Because death is not natural to man. That's why. That's why death is sad, isn't it? That's why we cry at funerals. That's why we grieve when people that we love die. And, you know, we try to convince ourselves, though, don't we? We try to convince ourselves that, well, death's just a part of life. It's just a part of the circle of life. But it's not. It's a wicked evil that plagues all of mankind because of one word that's not very popular today. Sin. That's why. God's people have always known something had to be done about this death thing. There's no workaround. There's no contingency plan. The only solution, as impossible as it sounds, is someone has to undo death. And that's what Jesus did when he died for sin and rose again from the dead on the third day. God tells us death entered the world in the first place through one man, Adam, and his sin. And as mankind's representative in the earth, Adam's sin is our sin. We're born into it, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not. Truth doesn't need you to believe in it in order for it to be true. We're born into it, born to die, as tragic as that is. We begin to die the day that we're conceived. From the very beginning, as soon as life is formed in its mother's womb, 
its trajectory and its inevitable end is death. It's inescapable. And I know that seems really morbid. We're all wearing bright clothing. We're wearing our Easter clothes and our pastels and stuff. And we got this drab, gray, bleak message. But y'all, none of us here this morning believes we're going to live forever, do we? We all know we're going to die. We know. We all know that we're going to die. But what we need to be reminded of, and what I'm reminding you of this morning, is we were not made to die. We were not made to die. There's only one kind of soul God makes. Immortal ones. And so we know that when we die, our souls live on, but we were never meant to live like that either, right? Just as disembodied spirits. That's not natural. We do know because the Bible teaches us that the souls of those who die believing in Christ go on to be with Christ in heaven at their death. And that's wonderful. But what's more wonderful is that one day they will be raised bodily like Jesus was to receive a body like Jesus has now to live bodily with Jesus for all of eternity. This has always been understood by God's people, and Christ's resurrection is the proof that God's promise to redeem includes the reversing, the curse of physical death. That's what I want all of us to be sure we understand this morning. Because sometimes, even as Christians, we can become so overwhelmed, so overcome by all the evil that we witness in the world, can we? We become so overwhelmed and so overcome by the pain and the trials and the difficulties and the, and the disabilities and the, and the dis, uh, disfigurements and even just the gradual wearing out process of old age and knowing that we're all facing down death one day. We get so hung up on that, so overwhelmed that we long to be delivered from this life, rid of the prison of our bodies, evacuated from the earth. So we, I don't know, lay around on clouds in, in, in heaven, just floating around on a permanent vacation. That's not what we were designed for. And that's not our ultimate hope. That's not why Jesus rose from the dead and walked around on the earth for another 40 days before he ascended into heaven and sat down on his throne. He rose from the dead bodily so that we would rise bodily and enjoy the physical blessings that God made and saw were good in the very beginning. Our bodies are good. Work is good. Eating and drinking is good. And Jesus, by his resurrection, declares, I am redeeming all of it. God's intended purposes for his creation will not be thwarted. And you can be sure that he is making all things new. He is restoring all things. Jesus not only conquered sin on the cross, he defeated death at his resurrection. And in the fullness of time, death itself will cease to be. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. We confessed that together just a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed, didn't we? He will re return to judge 
the living and the dead. The dead will be raised bodily right along with those who are living at that time. And those whose sins have not been washed away by the blood of Christ will be cast into the lake of fire to suffer for eternity. It's frightening. Because again, there's only one kind of soul God makes, right? Immortal ones. There is no other kind. Those who die in their sins and who have rejected Jesus, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for their sins, are raised, judged, found guilty, and then they only ever know the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. But those whose sins were laid on Jesus on that day cannot be judged. Those sins have been judged already. Jesus bore the wrath of God already due for those sins of those sinners on the cross. And so they are raised and physically fashioned and designed and fitted for glory in the new heavens and the new earth. When God himself and all of his radiant splendor and majesty and glory will dwell with man forever. That's our hope. And that hope is certain because Jesus himself has led the way out of the grave. And if we are trusting in him, we will follow in his footsteps. And as I've said already, this isn't a new idea. It's not something people only began to believe after uh, Christ's resurrection. God's people have always looked forward to this. And we're going to look at some examples this morning of this hope of the resurrection from the Old Testament, way back when. And then we're going to talk about the necessity of the resurrection. Those will be your two points for the sermon this morning. And the main idea is simple. Physical resurrection is the only solution to the problem of death. So if you look now at Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you are pleased to use imperfect sinners like me to stand here and try to communicate this truth to your people this morning. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would, that you would speak to your people, that they would hear their shepherd's voice and follow you, Lord Jesus. Help us to understand Enlighten our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a little bit of background here, a little bit of context of Isaiah before we get into point number one here on the hope of the resurrection. Isaiah is a prophet. He is an ambassador of God who is reminding God's people of the covenant that God has made with them. 
And he's showing them how they have continually hardened their hearts against this God who has proven himself to them. He's, he's, he's delivered them. He's, you know, he's, he's brought judgment before and, and then forgiven them. He's, he's delivered them from the hands of their enemies. And Isaiah is showing them how they have been breaking covenant with this God whose loving kindness has proven to be steadfast and trustworthy. God is pronouncing judgment on Israel now for breaking covenant with him. He says that their enemies, their surrounding nations around them, their enemies are going to come and swallow them up. And he says there's judgment coming on those enemies too. He's not going to miss them. He's going to swallow them up too. And then God sort of puts an exclamation point on those judgments saying the whole earth is going to incur God's judgment because everyone living in the whole earth has sinned against the God who made them. And then there's a turn. Beginning in chapter 25, a promise where God says that death itself, this veil that covers all nations and spreads over all people will be removed. He will swallow up death forever, it says in chapter 25, verse 8. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So God's people in, in this time, right here where we are, uh, what they're hearing is they're hearing a message of judgment and a message of hope. They're about to get what they've got coming to them. And that's why they're tempted to just dwell on that. They hear the impending judgment, they just sort of dwell on that. They're tempted to believe that God is abandoning them. But what God offers them is a hope and an assurance. We see it in this verse that we're looking at this morning in, in chapter 26, verse 19. God shifts their perspective to a bigger picture. So while things seem bleak for them now, God assures them that not even those who are already dead in the dirt will be forgotten by God. That's what he shows them. Because they are tied to him through faith, they will not be abandoned, but they shall surely arise. Death itself will not separate them from the love of God. God has the power to even command the dead to come to life. Those who dwell in the dust, he says, will not only arise and come back to life, but a life so extraordinary that they will sing for joy, awake and sing for joy, he says. So the kind of hope God reminds his people they have is a certain kind of hope, isn't it? Hope of the resurrection. Hope of renewal and restoration through conquering death itself. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, Isaiah says. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. So again, this hope of the resurrection, we can see, you know, we're, what, 700 years before Christ, we can see it's not a new idea. It's not something that just cropped up in the first century. And it didn't even start here in Isaiah. You know, again, God's people have always awaited the resurrection. You remember Joseph? Remember this guy? You know, we've said it a few times already this morning. All the way back in Genesis, we had Abraham, 
We had Isaac, we had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph, right? His brother sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. You remember this? And while he's in Egypt, God's hand was on him while he was there, and he actually raises him to a, a place of prominence and influence and power. And we know that God rescued his people out of Egypt. When we think about Egypt, when we think about the Old Testament, we know that story, right? Because that's the one they make movies about, you know? We, we know how they left Egypt and God rescued his people out of Egypt, okay? But when they first came to Egypt, y'all, it was, it was deliverance for them. There was famine in the land everywhere else. Egypt was where the food was. And so at this time, because God had been working in the life of Joseph providentially and putting all these pieces together, he's in a place where he can actually offer hope and and salvation in a physical sense to Jacob, his father Jacob, and his brothers and their families. So when they come to Egypt, things couldn't have been better. You know, they... They were safe, they were well-fed, they were well-cared for. And even then, Joseph knew that they would not stay in Egypt. He always knew this isn't home, this isn't the landing place. He knew that one day that they would leave Egypt because Egypt was not the land that God had promised to his people. So it just made sense in his mind, we can't possibly stay here, we're not where we're going to end up. So Joseph knows they'll leave Egypt one day, and before he dies, he makes God's people swear that they will take his bones with them when they go. Pack up my bones and take me with you. Take my bones, the only thing left of my physical body. Pack them up and take them with you and bury them in the promised land when you get there. And they kept their promise. Joseph makes that request in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 through 25. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. Then, 400 years later, in Exodus 13, they're getting out of Dodge. Things are a little dicey, right? Things are a little sideways in Egypt. They're leaving in a hurry, but not without Joseph. Exodus 13, 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So now they're out. Fast forward another 40 years, and they're still lugging Joseph's bones around with him through the wilderness with all the crazy stuff that happened there during that time. They still got him. They're taking him with them. And then we finally see in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, they finally bury Joseph's bones and the land promised to God's people. Why did that matter so much to Joseph? Because he believed in the resurrection. He lived with that hope and died with that hope. Hope that we now see much more clearly because Christ has risen. We've seen it done. 
Joseph knew God is the Lord of the living and that one day he would visit his people and literally raise them from the dead bodily to inherit an earth made holy by Christ, the promised Messiah, a glorified and perfected physical body to inhabit a glorified and perfected physical earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. That is why the resurrection is necessary. Which brings us to point number two. The necessity of the resurrection. It's necessary, y'all, because physical resurrection is the only solution to the problem of death. And the problem of death is the universal problem of mankind. Do we have a bigger problem than that? When God placed man in the garden to keep it, he gave him the whole world except for the fruit of one tree. He promised him eternal life with him if he obeyed. And what was promised if he didn't? What if he didn't obey? Death. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the moment he did eat of it, sin entered into the world and Adam began to die on his way back to the dust from which he was taken. If that problem isn't solved, if that problem of death isn't solved, not only are we in trouble and without hope, but Satan wins and God loses. Do you realize that? If death isn't undone, then God's desire to dwell with man on the earth and to bless him with everything that he has made is impossible. God's got to start over or do something else. But that's not what he does. He sticks to his plan. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's why Isaiah can say, your dead shall live. Your bodies will rise. That's why... Isaiah can say it, that, that those who dwell in the dust will awake and sing for joy. It's necessary in order for God to accomplish all that he intends to do. And his redemptive purposes, y'all, include a physical resurrection. It says, you who dwell in the dust. Interesting point there. We remember back in, in the very, very beginning. God made everything out of nothing. In the space of six days, by speaking it into existence, he said, let there be light, and there was. He said, let there be an expanse, let there be a heaven and a, and a place under heaven, and there was. He said, let there be earth and plants and animals, and there were. Time, space, 
matter came into existence like God was singing a song and the notes became things. He didn't make man that way, though. He didn't make man out of nothing. He made him from the dust of the earth he had already created and he breathed life into his nostrils. That's why we sometimes hear that language, funerals, from dust to dust. God told Adam, after he had sinned, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust is where we're all going, right? Dust is where we're all going. But as I said in the beginning, be reminded, it was never supposed to be that way. And so the dust is not where you will stay. Returning to the dust is the result of the curse. And the curse is lifted through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The redemption Jesus offers us in the gospel is only complete if that curse of death is reversed. And it requires resurrection to reverse it. Physical resurrection is necessary. It's the only solution to the problem of death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't really rise again from the dead bodily, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because God's people would have hoped all this time for death to be undone. And a resurrection that is only spiritual in nature or or theoretical or figurative and not physical means that death, not Christ, is reigning over God's creation. That's what a figurative, non-physical, spiritual resurrection does. Death wins. That's bad news. That's like a farmer planting a bunch of crops and God never sending rain. Isaiah says your dew is a dew of light. As much as the crops will be grateful for the little bit of moisture that comes from the dew in the morning to quench their thirst, how much more are we grateful for the light that has come into the world to cast out the darkness that enslaves us? And because it has, because Jesus is the light of the world who came to chase away the darkness and to conquer death, the grave is not our final destination. The tomb is a womb. The earth will give birth to the dead, it says there. God's people have always believed that. That's that's why we bury our dead. It's kind of a weird thing. In ancient times, a lot of other religions, they burned their dead. Now, I'll just say this since uh, creation is is a common practice today. This comes up a lot. People often ask, is it permissible for Christians to be cremated? 
If you want me to point to chapter and verse where God says that cremation is an unforgivable sin, I can't do it. If you want me to show you from Scripture where God says that he can't reconstitute and glorify a body that has been cremated in the last day, in the final resurrection, I can't do that either. If you want me to show you what God's people have always believed about the resurrection and what that belief has led them to do with dead bodies, I can prove very clearly from Scripture that is the practice of burial. God's people have always believed the body matters. The body is not a prison for the soul. It's part of who we are. And we're taking it with us. Christian burial is not the disposal of a body. It is the deposit of a body for safekeeping. As sad as we are to see loved ones go, we bury them in the earth, returning them to the dust with the hope of the resurrection because we recognize physical death, the curse of death itself, must be undone. We trust in this. We follow Christ out of the grave. We must. It has to happen. As Paul says, again, looking at 1 Corinthians 15, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death itself must die. The physical resurrection is the only solution to the problem of death. And Jesus solved that problem when he suffered the death that sin brought into the world and left it behind when he left the tomb empty. And he didn't stop there, did he? He didn't stop with his own resurrection. He ascended into heaven and took a seat at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And you know who he says the last enemy is? You know what the last enemy to be destroyed is after he's destroyed and vanquished all of his other enemies? Scripture tells us. Death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Death itself and it's retroactive. It's not like, you know, death doesn't just start stopping from then forward. It is erased. It is undone. And so we're still looking forward to the final resurrection, along with everyone else who's already gone before us, with everyone that's already returned to the dust and is with Jesus now. We are waiting with them for that day. Creation itself, Romans 8 tells us, is groaning for the redemption of our bodies. To be released from the curse of sin, from the shackles man's sin put on it. Creation itself looks forward to that day. It's a day when all things having been made new, death having died finally, sin being eradicated from the world, God will be able to dwell with man on the earth again and walk with him as in the cool of the day 
only it will be so much better and more splendid because in Christ we are one with him. That's the hope Christians have, and that hope is certain because God has plans for his creation, and a physical resurrection is necessary for those plans to be realized. But keep in mind, it's not only Christians who are raised. We said that before, right? Everyone is raised in the final judgment, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt, his word tells us. And I'll just say, if you're hearing this this morning, and you're not sure if you should be looking forward to the resurrection or dreading it, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Don't don't go home and try to clean up your life to make yourself presentable to God. Don't, don't, you know, clean up that resume. Don't do whatever it is that you think you can in order to make God accept you. He won't. He will not do it. You live in a world that tells you that you're good enough and you're smart enough. And if you just try hard enough, you can do anything you want. But one thing you will never be able to do is be righteous enough to escape the wrath of God and earn heaven one day. It'll never happen. Jesus is your only hope. He is your only hope. He died in the place of sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you and everyone else that's sitting around you. He died for sinners. And if you believe him, not just believe things about him, not just believe this fabled story that he walked out of a tomb one day, if you trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul, You will not awake from the dust dreading judgment. You will awaken, sing for joy. You can believe that and hope in that because it's a promise that God makes. And it was proven when Jesus left the empty tomb behind He is risen, to which we all say, he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection that you have always given your people by faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you accomplish all that is required for everlasting life, forgiveness of sins the reversal of the curse of death that sin brought on man, the death of death so that we have full assurance we will rise again. Holy Spirit, thank you for making these realities plain to us and helping us to understand your word. And God, I pray if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, that they will have heard your voice calling to them and that you would by your spirit enable them to come. Draw them to yourself, Father. And let them praise the name of Jesus with us in this place on this day. We offer our prayers to you in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.